back to yet another episode of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens. And you can find my movie reviews and interviews in the U.S. and abroad in print and online 24-7, including on BehindTheLensOnline.net. But every Monday, I am right here, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, live on AdrenalineRadio.com. And if you're listening, if you're online, you can hop onto Facebook and uh, you can actually watch along on the Facebook live stream on the AdrenalineRadio.com Facebook page. Not that there's anything exciting uh, other than the fact you get to see the really cool Marvel swag that is out for the Avengers. Um and, of course, that's the excitement this week. Uh, I would love to see the film actually break a billion dollars globally opening weekend. Uh, and I think there's a shot that if any film can do it, I think it can do it. Um, I'm thrilled that my wait is going to be over within hours, mere hours. Uh, and I'll be checking out the film uh, with, I'm happy to say... A very a wonderful colleague whom I adore, George Pinocchio of ABC7. Uh, we're going to be screening it uh, at the same time together. So, uh, and then we have to keep our mouths shut. So, and and Pam is sitting. Pam's sitting in the booth laughing. Okay, you know, you guys all know by now. Pam finds some things extremely funny, weird things, but but fun things. Um, today's show. It's as Big Boss Nick Federoff pointed out. What did we plan this? We've got two guests. We have Rox. Well, Roxanne Dawson. We have my my exclusive pre-recorded interview with Roxanne, uh, talking about the number three film at the box office this Easter weekend, Breakthrough. And then joining us live at the midpoint of the show is writer director Roxanne Benjamin to talk about her new feature film. Body at Brighton Rock. Um, two films as different as night and day. Two filmmakers, and we're going to find out exactly how different they are in their approaches to filmmaking. Um, first, we're going to take a look at, we're going to talk about Breakthrough. This is actually true story. It's based on a true story of the Smith family, John Smith uh, and his his parents, Brian and Joyce. On January 19th, 2015, uh, John was out on Lake St. Louis with his friends. The lake was seemingly frozen and thick enough to support their weight. They got to a point where, in the ice where it was not. He plunged through it. Uh, one of the other boys plunged through. Uh, the third one was holding on to the edge. Two of them managed to get out onto the firmer ice before rescue workers could pull them to the side. John did not. John was in the water for a minimum of over 15 minutes before rescue workers could actually find him underneath the ice. Uh, He was clinically dead for an hour. He was given CPR for 27 minutes. He had no pulse for 45 minutes. And and he had been rushed to uh, the hospital. And while he was there... His mother refused to let her son go, and a woman of great faith, uh, Joyce Smith, started praying and willing him back to life. And within a minute or two, according to all testimonials and accounts from the attending uh, physicians, uh, 
and medical staff, including uh, Dr. Sutterer, who was the first doctor to treat him in ER, and within a minute or two of her prayers, he started breathing. Uh, it was a road to recovery, but within days, uh, under the treatment of Dr. Garrett at another hospital, he uh, medical uh, medical science is still just flabbergasted and amazed by the story of John. He should not have made a recovery. He should not have had brain activity. And he came back to be a vital, healthy, thriving 14-year-old. And this was in 2015. The book was written and adapted for the big screen by writer Grant Neport. Uh, it's a wonderful adaptation. What I find most impressive about the film and, uh, and director Roxanne Dawson with what she does is it's a faith-based film, but she doesn't cram religion down down your throats uh this is a film that for believers for non-believers it is a fascinating story it is above all a, a story about a mother's love for her child and the lengths that a mother will go to uh for her child and we see that unfold here one of the producers on the film one of my favorite producers uh, with the faith in the faith-based market, Devin uh, Devin Franklin, he's behind Miracles from Heaven. Heaven is for real, um, and he really has a handle on this subgenre. And together with Roxanne, they do an amazing, amazing job. Uh, so, without any further ado, let's take a listen to my exclusive interview with director Roxanne Dawson, talking about breakthrough. You did a beautiful job with this adaptation Thank of you. book to screen. But I'm Thank really you. curious with all of your te episodic television direction. I'm curious what made this the film for you to make that leap into a feature film directorial? Well, I, it's the story. Uh, you're always looking for a story that you want to tell, that you can get behind, that you believe in. And um, the minute I... I heard this story, heard the premise that even in the medical records, you know, patient died, mother prayed, patient came back to life, was intriguing to begin with. And then as I began to do more research, I just fell in love with the whole idea of the story, and I really wanted to tell it. Well, uh, you picked uh, one heck of a story for, <laughs> for your first feature directorial. And from a directing standpoint, this is not an easy story to tell because of the very nature of the circumstances that give rise to it. I mean, yes. you tackle underwater filming, a frozen lake, mm -hmm. you're in winter, you're lensing on snow, which is always the death of cinematographers half the time, uh, and the challenges that presents. And plus you're amassing a, an essentially large group of people, even though your ensemble itself is, your main ensemble is relatively small. How, when you got, when you got this script and you sit there looking at it and it's like, how am I going to approach this? How, what were your thoughts about how you were going to approach this? I know it seems pretty daunting, doesn't it? <laughs> there were a lot of elements, but I read it and I saw the challenges and I just, got excited. I said, these are challenges um, 
you know, I'd like to face. Uh, I thought that there was a way to do it, and uh, we got all of the departments together, storyboarded the sequence, um, and made it happen. It's uh, It was definitely a challenge from minute to minute, especially two days out on a on a frozen lake, um, which we had to shoot early because it was actually starting to melt, so we pulled those two days up in production, and all the... Uh, and all the different um, departments scrambled to make it happen, but we needed to. And then three days in a tank to try to um, get all of our underwater shooting and our um, at water level shooting. And uh, but um, it was all worth it. It was so beyond exciting to stitch this all together. Did you approach this from looking at it from a shot listing and the technical aspect first, or? Did you get your cast in place first? Because I've got to say, your main cast is outstanding. I was so thrilled to see Dennis Habert cast, you know, in a doctor role because his voice is so commanding. You believe what he's telling you. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's so fascinating. We this um, this script. I think the story behind the script really intrigued every actor who participated in it. And I talked to each and every one of them before they decided to take on these roles. They wanted to make sure, um, they wanted to know how the story was going to be told, what their characters were actually like. And after talking to each and every one of them, they each had a very personal reason for doing it. Sometimes they revealed that to me, sometimes they didn't. But nobody just did this like it was a job. Each actor had a personal issue that this movie spoke to. Uh, how hard was it to put this cast together? Topher Grace is not somebody you would expect to play the pastor. Of course, given uh, Pastor Jason's <laughs> personality, Topher is, is the perfect fit. But he's not the fir- Such a perfect fit. Such a perfect fit. And it's so funny, that was probably the most difficult role to envision. And Topher actually came to us and wanted to do it, but he had his own ideas and really wanted to talk to me first about what those ideas were. I think we spent about 45 minutes on the phone going through the script. He said, this is what I want to do here. This is what I'd like to do here. And I loved his mind and his collaborative quality. And then he said, um, I said, do you want to get on the phone with the real Pastor Jason? Would you like to meet him? And he said, no, I've got my own image in my head. I don't want to do that. But inside, I knew everything he was doing was exactly right. It was Mm -hmm. exactly uh, Pastor Noble. It was amazing. When they finally did meet, it was very funny. I mean, they are... They are two sides of the same coin in terms of the characters. Well, I mean, even just looking in the end credits, and you have the side-by-side picture of the actor and the real person. Yeah. And I'm looking at the two pictures, and it's like, oh, my God, Topher was perfect. I know, and you know that shirt, they're both wearing almost the same shirt. Yeah. That was not planned. That was not planned. We pulled up, um, it was our editor who noticed it. We had the picture of... um, of Pastor Jason, and we wanted to find a picture of Topher, and she said, wait a minute, what was he wearing in the final scene? Because we didn't have a still of him, and we went to the final scene and went, oh my gosh, it's oh. almost the same shirt oh my they're God. wearing, it's crazy. But of course, you know, I've got to ask you about casting Chrissy. Chrissy is not someone you would expect in this role. She is a dynamo here, and of course, yeah. she sings the end, the end credit song. Yes. 
did it so beautifully uh, the other night on the um, American uh, Country Music Awards show. Um, her first time singing live, especially in front of an audience like that, um, just knocked it out of the ballpark. Um, well, basically, this movie would not have been done without Chrissy, and I have to give uh, Fox 2000 that um, uh, that win there because they said either you get Chrissy or we're not doing this. So they had met with Chrissy, felt that she was right, then I was told about this, and um, they said Chrissy wants to meet you and go ahead and seal the deal or we're not doing a movie. So I had coffee with Chrissy. We sat down and discussed the film. At that time, she had another commitment that she would have to let go of. And, um, but it all worked out. Uh, we hit it off, and she said yes. And from the minute she said yes, we were just all, everybody on board, just uh, full speed ahead. Mm -hmm. How beneficial is it for you? Because you have a lengthy acting career yourself. So how beneficial is it for you as a director to have that acting background as well when you're working, when you're casting, and when you're working with your actors? Well, for me, um, it's invaluable because I really do respect what they do. I know what it's like to be on the other side. I think about that often when I'm asking things of my actors. I really do know what it feels like. And I think because I have respect for them, respect for their process, um, and I also am able to talk to actors in different ways, understanding what they need to achieve certain moments. So many actors are different. And... Um, I just think it's an invaluable tool in my pocket, and uh, um, I will always love, love working with actors above all, above everything else in directing. And how do you think your actors feel about having an actor-turned-director directing them? I think that they, for the most part, and really, you, you sort of have to ask them, but the feedback that I've gotten is that um, is that they feel safe, they they tend to trust me. You need to trust your director so that you can get your eyes off yourself and you can act unselfconsciously. And and I know what that feels like, too. If you don't trust your director, then you're constantly judging yourself when you're out there. And you don't want to do that. You want to be able to just do your work and then trust that the, the director will guide you in the right way. And hopefully, for the most part, I feel that um, the actors that I've worked with um, end up trusting me and when we do we can come up with some really um extraordinary uh collaboration mm -hmm. well it definitely shows on screen that they're that they are in a comfort zone with you as a director because the I'm glad that shows up. <laughs> it shows up because the performances are just so authentic and so honest right especially chrissy uh and of course then, yeah. then you bring in young marcel ruiz yes and what was your question? You said I missed the beginning of that. Oh, no, I'm saying, and then you, you bring in, you know, it's so authentic. Uh, but then you bring in Marcel Ruiz uh, playing John. Yeah. How was that working with and essentially helping mold this young talent, uh, not only as an actor, but in this role? Well, this is a very difficult role to play. I mean, mm -hmm. for a 14-year-old. Uh, John Smith himself was 14 when this happened. Marcel Ruiz was 14 when we cast him. Uh, it's um, it's a it's a kind of thing like you can't turn to a 14 year old and say, "Remember what it's like when you when you drowned, you know, and then came back to life." I mean, there's no life experience that they can even draw on, and they're so young that it's 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 hard 
to, for them to really um, find sort of the what ifs to to even compare this to. So what we were looking for was a very good actor who could also play basketball, who was also Hispanic, but didn't speak with an accent that was too overwhelming, mm -hmm. which is a lot to ask for, um, and who also was willing to be directed. And I think that Marcel was so generous, so honest in saying to me, I haven't experienced these things. I don't know where to go here. And we spent a lot of time together uh, trying to create uh, John Smith's life So, and, and his feelings. And, and Marcel was just really willing to work and work so hard. And he did. He really, he really did. And um, I was so and am so very proud of him. I mean, he, he really does an amazing job. So I'm curious, yes. what kind of challenges did you face with you? Because you have some very intense underwater sequences here, uh, you know, and Marcel is a huge part of those underwater sequences. What kind of challenges yes. and considerations? Obviously, you used a tank, but I'm curious for the actual ice break, things like that. Did you rely on a post-production VFX for that? Did you create that? I'm really curious how you pulled it off because... It is so authentic, and you really are. Oh, thank when, you. when they break through well, the ice, really, you know you are. Your, really your heart's in your throat. Authentic, because if you don't believe that that happened, then you don't believe the story. Um, it's really a combination of things. Uh, when we were out on the real, the real ice, uh, we could not break the ice. So, um, but he did, you know, fake a fall onto. Uh, onto pads when we were out on the actual real ice in sub-zero temperatures. And then when we were in the tank, we had built um, a layer of what looked like ice, but it was actually wax. Mm -hmm. And he stood on that wax, and the cameras were underneath, and he actually did go through, just fell right into the water towards the camera. So all of that is, is real in terms of, you know, that's not visual effects, it's, everything is enhanced, uh, you know, with visual effects to a certain degree to help it smooth away the edges, but that really was him falling through the ice, and all the underwater stuff with Marcel, that's all, of course, real um, and challenging. Um, he had a lot of acting to do under that, under the water, mm -hmm. so we needed to feel all of the beats, and, um, and it's difficult because you can't really communicate with him until he comes up for air. You know, it was a trust thing too when he's being pulled deep and down into the water almost through the, a tunnel and disappears um, when he's finally blacked out. He had to trust that he was going to come out the other side of the tunnel and be pulled out in time. Oh, so God. He was really trusting when we were working under the water. It's, um, it wasn't easy, but, you know, we, we, we were very well planned. We were very safe. And um, and I think we made it work. I, I've got to say, that had to be a consideration for your producer, for Devin, because right there, your insurance goes up. you got all these new safety protocols, new teams that have yes. to come in that mess with your budget and take away from other things that you want to spend your money yeah. on. So you really... Yeah, you never you never screw with the with the budget for safety though and that's um that's my priority and it's one of the reasons these underwater sequences took so long um because you know both the, the cameras are are uh, wonderful underwater operators 
um, our amazing DP who was lighting all of this, um, everybody from special effects to visual effects to um, to props to the actors. Um, everybody had to be tethered. I mean, we needed to play this safe. We were not having any accidents on the set, and we didn't. Mm -hmm. um, and it's because we really took the care to do it right. I'm curious, Roxanne, were there any real challenges or restrictions um, or hurdles that you had to overcome doing a faith-based film in terms of your dialogue? I know in your Uptown Funk sequence, uh, there are some words that are excised you know, mm -hmm. from the track. So I'm curious if this became, these were considerations you had to think about as a director when you were doing things because of the faith-based nature of this film. Well, one of the first things I said when I went in to um, meet on this film was that one of the things that attracted me to it is that this story did not just preach to the converted. It, it really has a large audience. And my goal was to really just tell the story without embellishment. The story really stood for itself, that there was no need for preaching. There was no need for changing anything, making it more dramatic. It really, it speaks for itself. Um, but on the other hand, as we got closer to releasing the film, there were definitely, uh, there are certain, I guess, for lack of a better word, um, requests from the faith-based community, and one of them, you know, was removing uh, one of the words from the uh, Uptown Funk. I wasn't a fan of that choice. I would have loved to have kept it intact, but um, I understood that it was more important that we, uh, at that point, uh, listen to our faith-based audience, knowing that I didn't want them to be, um, uh, you know, to, to not want to see the film because right. of that. And um, so it was a sacrifice that I made. It wasn't too pleased with it, but I, hopefully not a lot of people will notice it or they can just let that go. And um, in terms of the rest of the film, we actually strove to take um, a lot out of it. There were, we, we didn't, we were, Devon and I uh, were very conscious about how many times the word God was used, how many crosses were in on the uh, screen, because um, we realized that the story told itself. Right. If, if we had to say, and this is Devon really talking to our writer, if we had to say God 90 times in, in a film, then we aren't doing our job. Um, uh, so we really were very conscious about actually not catering to um, any kind of, um, you know, uh, sort of uh, preaching mm -hmm. throughout the film. It was very important that I just wanted the story to live on its own. And for people who are either of different faith or who are not of any faith to be able to come in and say, wow, that's a drama inspired by a true story mm -hmm. and to somehow take something away from it. Well, and that's one of the things I noticed that real other than the church where there, yes, there, we have the, the big cross in the church. Other than that, the only cross we really see is the, the cross necklace that Chrissy's character wears through the whole film. Uh, uh -huh. That's really the yeah. only one, and it goes with the character. Because she is... Oh, absolutely. That's, that's, you don't need to embellish that anywhere else. And, yes. I, and so you did that so tastefully to let the character do, do the storytelling rather than the production design around her. 
great. We tried. We really tried. Yeah, no, you re- you hit the nail on the head with that really well. How how uh, strict were you with sticking with Grant's script on this one? Did and because it is a true story, you have a greater responsibility than somebody who's coming in just doing a made-up fictional piece. So I'm curious how... Oh, absolutely. There's, there's a huge responsibility. Ultimately, you know, this is a two-hour movie, but this is their life, you know? And if we didn't get the thumbs up from Pastor Jason and from Joyce and from John, we would have changed it to meet their needs. Um, it's very important that we stay faithful to the story. And that was from day one, and on every day that I shot, that was at the forefront of my mind, uh, to stay faithful to the story. Um, so, yeah, that was uh, very demanding and a huge obligation. Mm-hmm. I've got to ask you about the music in the film, the individual needle drop mm-hmm. pieces, your live performance, and then your scoring. The live performance in there of the band in the church that should be a single that is fabulous that is incredible <laughs> i love that uh, but then you've got Mar- uh, marcello's score happening and you know mm-hmm. you, you have some other music peppered in so i'm curious what your thoughts were and your conversations were uh, concerning the music that you have the, the individual songs you have uh, because that is mm-hmm. a big part of this and you know, and we stay away from the amazing grace and onward Christian soldiers. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm I'm curious about your thought process in developing this aspect of the film. You know, it's so interesting. I'm, I guess, I come from a musical background. I'm always thinking in terms of of music and score. Um, one of the things written in Grant's script was that uh, Uptown Funk was playing. In in, um, in John's earphone on on that day at the beginning of the of the film, it was period correct. It would be the song that he'd be listening to. There's something about it that that speaks to the time. It's tongue in cheek. It's humorous yet upbeat. It's also unexpected for a film like this. I was told from day one we would never get it, um, and we saw because it was just too expensive and it would never be cleared. But we um, we listened to a lot of other options, and in the end, we got it. And I don't know why I had faith that we would get it, but I feel like it's a perfect start to the film. It's unexpected. Oh, yeah. It just leads you. It sort of it sort of blindsides you, so that, mm-hmm. you know, disarms you, so that you can then maybe look at the film as maybe something other than quote faith based. You know what I mean? Yeah. So uh, that song was a fight to get that. Um, Carrie Underwood's participation in this has been invaluable. I literally was up at two o'clock in the morning one night and listening to her song Something in the Water and said, My gosh, that would be the perfect song for the for the end of this and I put it in the temp track in our tempings and then I said, Is there any way that she would allow us to use this? And then when they approached her and showed her the film, she fell in love with the film and and decided to contribute her new song, Love Wins, which is even more right and less on the nose and so perfect for our movie that I was blown away. And from her participation, everything else just kind of fell into place in terms of, 
you know, um, getting Mickey Guyton for her song, Hold On, having Diane Warren be inspired by the film and write the song that Chrissy sings at the end, um, I'm Standing With You. And just one thing led to the next. I, I don't know. It's just been, we have been blessed. <laughs> blessed and blessed and blessed. That's all I can say. We're the most amazing talent that supports what we're trying to say with this film. Yeah, I mean, it just, and I love the fact, and you're absolutely right with the surprise of starting the film with Uptown Funk. That was, I'm watching this, I'm like, okay, where is this film going? Um, but it starts you, you're happy, it's upbeat, and you're really looking forward to what comes next. So you really set up this great juxtaposition of tone with what is about to happen when we get to the yeah. second act. Um, so I love that that part of your construction. You really you keep right. the audience on their toes with that. I'm curious what led you to hiring Zoran as your cinematographer. I fell in love with his work years ago when he did War Inc. with John Cusack. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious what led you to him for Breakthrough. Well, we met with a lot of different um, potential photographers. And Zorn just got it. In the room, I felt that he and I were on the same page. He spoke emotionally about the script. He spoke um, with a kind of identification. He and I just, it, it's almost as if we talked the same language. And, and I was not uh, disappointed. Every day, he and I as a team um, worked together, you know, with the constraints, obviously, of, of time and location and all of that. He and I knew exactly where we wanted to be. He believed in the film, believed in the message, and I think his work is phenomenal, mm -hmm. just phenomenal. If you look at how much time we spend in the hospital room, yeah, and how different the lighting is throughout the day, what it says, how it informs the scene, I mean, all of that is Zorin. Yeah. It's, it's the passage of time. It's Anybody who spent, you know, days in a hospital with a loved one understands what it's like to feel the passage of time in a hospital room. And he captured that. And that is not easy. He's just brilliant beyond belief and, again, so blessed to have worked with him. And, of course, your camera angles within the hospital room continually changing so we don't get locked in with just, okay, he's laying in the bed. Okay, she's holding again. his hand. <laughs> no, you. the camera is constantly repositioned. And mm -hmm. it, it really gives us different perspectives from the different people that are coming into the room, too. Yes. So, and we really thought of each room in the hospital as what is the scene trying to say. Right. And making the blocking, making the camera angles, making the lighting all help us out with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, really, really well done because that's always very challenging. And before I let you go, Roxanne, one more question for you. What did you, you personally and as a director, take away from the making of this film as your first feature, mounting that feature hurdle? Um, what did you take away and learn that you will now take forward into your future work? Well, again, I can't emphasize enough how blessed I feel to be the one to tell this story. Um, 
I've been wanting for a while to to tell a story like this, and um, I'm kind of spoiled now. <laughs> um, I'm hoping this is not a once in a lifetime experience. I would love to be able to find other scripts that I believe in as much as this, and um, just to continue, actually more now than ever, trusting in um, in projects that that have kind of a moral compass, the moral compass that, that I would like to uh, project and believe in. And that was director Roxanne Dawson talking about Breakthrough. Breakthrough is in theaters right now, and it stars Chrissy Metz as Joyce Smith, uh, Josh Lucas, Brian Smith, Dennis Haysbert as Dr. Garrett, Topher Grace as Pastor Jason, in a performance that I really can't recommend highly enough. Topher really is a scene stealer. Uh, Sam Trammell, and of course Marcel Ruiz makes his uh, really big debut as 14-year-old John Smith. And then another standout among the cast is Mike Coulter, who plays um, EMT Tommy Shine in the film. And Tommy is somebody who is a professed atheist. He doesn't believe in God. Uh, so getting this perspective in the film also as to what transpires and in his relationship that then develops with John. It's it's wonderful to watch. Very well done film. Um, do yourself a favor and see it. And right now, I'm very excited to welcome Roxanne Benjamin right now. Hi, Roxanne. Welcome. Hi. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm very excited to have you to talk about Body of Brighton Rock. Uh, (laughs) I didn't know what to expect when this crossed my desk. And I got it. Number one, anything that has a body in it, I figure, okay, there's going to be something good. We got rocks. You look at the poster. We're out (laughs) in the wilderness. Okay, we're going to have dead bodies. We're going to have fun stuff happening. I didn't know just how much fun stuff we'd have happening, uh, in- <laughs> including a bear, a real bear, not a CGI yep. bear, um, yep. and the beautiful, beautiful locales that you found up in Idlewild uh, to shoot this. You know, uh, beginning to end, and the big selling point here are, are everything you went through as a writer-director. Uh, in bringing this is not an easy film to do because of the very fact you're out there in nature and you are you know you have to play to the whims of mother nature for a film like this so I'm wondering when you got the idea to tell this story to sit down and write this script uh, did these things enter your mind or did you just figure eh, I'll deal with it when it comes up yes and no <laughs> because it was um it was literally something that I wrote to be a smaller budget and more contained because at the end of the day, it really ends up being more of a chamber piece, but that chamber happens to be one clearing in the middle of nowhere Mm -hmm. in nature. And I wrote it specifically to take place more in the daytime. But then as I was rewriting it, as we were getting closer to production, it was realizing like this actually needs a lot more night to meet the promise of the premise of the movie, which is literally a girl out of the earth out of her element, having to spend a night in the element with this dead body. So you need the nighttime. Uh, and there's definitely a mix of, like, day for night and some night stuff in there, but it is primarily night when we were shooting. And timing-wise, we ended up shooting in winter 
which also means you have less daylight to shoot. So all of those daylight scenes that I had that were going to make up the bulk of the movie, I had to change and bring them more into nighttime just for a matter of production because of the time of year it was. And then since it was in the middle of winter, we were also subject to uh, some pretty insane Santa Anas at the time, December 2017, when all the wildfires, uh, wildfires were breaking out. So they shut the power off in the town for two days because we were in a windstorm, but they literally invented a new category to describe, which is a category purple windstorm mm-hmm. with, like, trees coming down around us and the whole thing. So, And there's no cover set when the entire set is just nature. So our already kind of insane 11-day shoot turned into a nine-and-a-half-day shoot for principal. And then when we got to the bear, that was actually the easiest part to shoot uh, because it was so planned out ahead of time, and we had so many controlled variables there, mm-hmm. whereas the actual bulk of the shoot was just, you know, we really were just at the whims of Mother Nature. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm curious, was it always your intent to use a live bear or did you come? Oh, yeah, absolutely. That was always your intent. Absolutely. Yes. I carved that out in the budget very early on and that was something I wasn't going to touch. <laughs> uh, also, it's, ultimately, it's, it's cheaper to shoot with the bear than it is to try to do that digitally. You're right. Or at least to do it digitally and make it look any good. Yeah. But, you know, then you have, then you have to and find a bear. And I knew that was a big chunk of production value for us for a movie of this size, so... It was really important to have the live bear. Oh, I love the bear. I love the bear. The bear is... He's adorable. That, it's a problem. That bear is one of my favorite parts of the film. <laughs> well, that's good. <laughs> yeah, but another... Yeah, he was a trooper. <laughs> another part of the film that is so key here, and you already touched on it, you were shooting a lot of Night for Night. And I've got to tell you, what your DP, what Hannah Getz does with lighting and lensing for those night-for-night scenes, there is some really stunning, stunning camera work happening there. Uh, you've got your fire oh, go- You've got your firelight going. You have negative space that plays so strongly because then you bring in your sound design that piggybacks on that negative space that Hannah captures, that really sets the mind reeling and immerses us, puts us in Wendy's shoes as she's sitting there, hunched over, crouching, scared to death, uh, and you're feeling this. So, But it, that, that all starts with Hannah's lighting and lensing at night, and then you piggyback that with your sound. And you do not skimp on your sound design here. You really do take advantage of the sounds that you hear when you're hiking up in the mountains, up in the hills. Yeah, I definitely wanted to have a heightened feel to that sound design overall and not to just feel like nature. Well, it is, you know, it's like the, the little things that you hear out in the middle of the night when you're camping that really kind of give you the biggest impact in those moments. It, I just wanted to use silence very sparingly. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've worked with Owen Greenwich Young, who's my sound designer on every single movie I've ever done, and he's a very huge part, I think, of what makes uh, these genre movies so successful is his sound design and his sound team. And 
they do all the foley themselves. And, um, he has a really good dramatic sense. Mm-hmm. And then I also work with the same composers uh, for everything I do, which is two guys called The Gifted. And um, same thing, especially with this, which ultimately ends up being almost a silent film for a good majority of it. It does. Uh, I wanted their score to really service her inner monologue. Mm-hmm. And you didn't go. And you didn't go into so her inner monologue. It's also raising the sound design to kind of give her someone to play against. So those are like the dialogue is between the sound design and the score. Yeah, and then of course you know she talks to herself out there, which. Hey, all of us would be doing the exact same thing if we were out there alone in the wilderness. Uh, And talks to the corpse. Uh, So there's, and you actually get some light moments because of that. While you have the character of Wendy, um, played by Karina Fontes, while you have, you know, Wendy doing very teenage, number one, teenage girl things but also things yes. that, that any of us would be doing in the same situation. We feel the lightness that comes with that because you are trying. It's like Julie Andrews in The Sound of Music. You know, when I'm afraid, I think <laughs> of my favorite things. And this is what we all subconsciously do uh, in situations like this. So it adds a lighter, a light touch in moments that takes a little bit of edge off and puts us into this lull, and then you hit us again with something <laughs> that, that builds the tension. And that's really, it's really wonderfully constructed the way you, you have that broken out like that, but using the music as that internal dialogue to give us that lighter moment through the character of Wendy. Well, thank you. Thank you. Uh, yeah, she's, the thing I like about Karina Fontes in this role, too, is that she has a certain vulnerability mm-hmm. uh, that she's able to present on screen, which is not something that I see very much, which is she has a naivete that right. you still care about her, even when she's making mistakes. And I sure. didn't want to have a character who, you know, 30 minutes into being stuck in the woods is suddenly, like, Bear Gorillas and, like, knows how to do everything. Right. And, like, is just kicking ass because that's not what would happen. You would just still be trying to sort everything out. And that's just not how life works. It's right. how we want life to work and it's how we want to see ourselves, but it's not how we are. And so that was something that was very important to me was to have a character who felt very real so that when she does end up getting injured at any point, like the audience really feels for her in the mm-hmm. situation that she's in. And mm-hmm. it doesn't seem like she's suddenly superwoman. 20 minutes in and isn't the same character that we started the movie with. Right. No, you, she really brings, she gives, Karina gives Wendy a great ineptitude and clumsiness that, (laughs) that, you know, I can relate to, um, you know, I, I think that, that just endears the character to us even more. Uh, because as you said, if if, if she could do everything, What's the point? She wouldn't be afraid. Uh, she'd be sitting there cutting down trees and making a lean-to to hide under during the night. She wouldn't, yeah. be, she wouldn't be freaking out about the radio not working or her cell phone. Uh, so, And the fact that she freaks out over the cell phone not working first. I mean, that is, that, 
that's very typical in today's world, uh, and yeah. especially with teens. Totally. And you hone in on that, too. You really let us understand that these are teens that are volunteering as trail guides. And I like that. Yeah. Because you take them from, they're like on the cusp of doing something adult, but they still need supervision. They still need training. And I love how how you yeah. pick this age bracket. And then you have Miranda Bailey. God bless Miranda. I love see, I love when Miranda love pops up in films. Uh, yep. <laughs> you have her as leader, Sandra, who's tough as nails, and she's going to mold them. And you just see this so not working. And it, yeah. it's great. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Was it always your intent to have this kind of age bracket for Wendy and the other trail oh, guides? Yeah, totally. Totally. And that's also, it, it also serves more to like the scenario too, that, you know, I've worked in a couple of different parks and I, I spend a lot of time in the parks with my dad every year. And um, a lot of the people who work in them are either like retired, you know, teachers or they're like kids that are on break from, from college for the summer. Mm-hmm. And you're not exactly like they are just, you know, they're, they're handing out pamphlets and stuff. It's not like you're a trained backwoods guide. Um, and it happens a lot more than people would like to think that they actually find like bodies or things like that, or people get lost off the trails in the woods and that things go from like a pleasant literal walk in the park to, Oh shit, you're, you know, things are getting really bad in like half an hour. You can end up in a situation where you thought you were just on this grand adventure, which is kind of what Wendy is like. She's mm-hmm. very, naive and like everything's like happy go lucky and then she just wanders farther and farther off the path and it goes from like fine to not fine very quickly and that's really what happened and uh that was important to me to kind of really get across and i am definitely like all of the things it's funny when i run into people who are actually like pretty savvy in the woods Uh uh-huh they get very annoyed by some of the things that she's done. And they're like, no one would ever do that. And I'm like, I have done every single one of these things. Oh, yeah. That's how they ended up in the script. Like, I've been the person who gets spooked and rolls down the hill or, like, leaves their phone on and their phone dies. And then you can't look up the map. Like, I have done all of the things that are in there, basically, besides finding the dead body. Well, and what I love, too, is this is a cautionary tale for people. Learn how to read maps. Your phone may not be there when yeah. you need it. Learn how to read a map. Uh, and well, that's the other thing. Is like we're so used to just having like our devices be able to do all these things for us, and then I just didn't want it to be like no service because that's. I mean, it really is what happens. That it, you know, you want to see that progression of like how things go from bad to worse as like all of these kind of technological things fail her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, how did you find the the specific location because? The location that you have, it's beautiful. You have that great rock. You've got the great overlook that really lend to giving us beauty and majesty amidst Wendy's um, trials and tribulations. Yeah, it was actually Hannah and I went uh, kind of all over the place to a bunch of different parks to try to find that right location that gave us everything that we needed which is really just somewhere that you can actually house crew and have a production base and also make it feel like you're in the middle of nowhere. And Idlewild really was the perfect location for that because it really looks like we're just 
out there. I mean, we were hiking quite a bit, you know, we were hiking up and down a mountain, basically. It was about, like, three-quarters of a mile to, like, locations that we were using and mm-hmm. pretty sketchy, rocky terrain to get up there. But we're right by campgrounds at the same time, and, like, there's places that you can stay. And if we turned around when she's on that rock, you would just see the nature center, like, right behind us. So it's mm-hmm. just a matter of, like, framing out all of civilization. And then also my, my uh, producers... Um, uh, their post house and production company as well, and they have a very strong VFX team that like removed a lot of things oh, wow. from all of those shots too. Like there's cabins, and you know, there's like a Christmas tree a couple times because it's in the middle of December that you can see in the background. So they they removed a lot of that stuff for us, so it makes it look like we're a little bit out more out in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. And then there's some shots that are just completely created by them mm-hmm. that aren't that are um, hopefully blend into the movie and you can't tell which ones those are. <laughs> no, it's, you know, as I said, the cinematography is beautiful and you really cannot tell, you know, what is fabricated, what has been enhanced. Uh, you know, it looks, it really does look like I could just walk up there, hike up there, fall flat on my face and look out and see that. Um, mm-hmm. You know, truly, truly, very, very well done and picture, picturesque. Uh, which, well, thank you. I'm always up for watching a film that is very picturesque, and I don't care how how it gets there, but I like it. Now, <laughs> hiking up three quarters of a mile. How much equipment were you bringing up, or did you get to leave it at, like at the nature center or something like that? Because that can always present a problem when you've got to come trekking up with your equipment no matter how semi-civilized well, yeah, we it is. To, we had to pack everything with us for the most part. So we had big, like, hiking packs that we were taking up and down the mountain with us for, with most of our gear. Mm-hmm. Um, and then most of our night shoot locations were a little closer to the campgrounds. Mm-hmm. We were using the actual campgrounds and then just painting some things out. So that allowed us to have, like, our larger lights and generators. So we were still hauling generators up into the woods wow. too. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So Everybody ha- definitely got their workouts in. Definitely so, got their steps in for the day. So, you know, how was your cell service and that of the crew while you were up there? It was awful. <laughs> <laughs> we were definitely putting ourselves into the situation that was in the movie very much, though. Oh, my God. Yeah, that's God. the thing that's like, it is the cliche in horror movies that you have no cell service, but, like, you really don't. Oh, my God. I love yeah. that. But, I mean, we have walkies and CV and everything else with us, too. So, like, we have actual working walkies, not those fake ones that she has. Well, and you didn't drop it off the edge of a cliff and have it drop to the bottom and smash, either. Yeah. So well, we actually did with a couple of them, though, and that was super fun. But, yes, not with the ones that we were actually using. Oh, my God. And you add in a very surprise element, be it supernatural, spiritual... It was And I love the way that that's crafted in, uh, involving the dead body. I love how that is crafted in. Oh, thank you. How difficult was that to work that into the script construct and visually carry that through, uh, through multiple scenes in different incarnations? having the balancing act of what might be in her head and what might be happening and mm-hmm. to leave that line kind of a question for the audience to answer itself. Mm-hmm. Um, I have my interpretation of it. It might be completely different from, from somebody else's, but the, the, 
a big influence for it was these kind of YA novels that I read as a kid uh, by Christopher Pike that all of his stories always had more than one thing going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was just more interesting to me than just writing a supernatural story or just a survival story. It's more of an existential survival story mm-hmm. at the end of the day. And also that, you know, she doesn't need the help of anyone to get through this. She just needs to realize that she can get through this. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the thing that I find ironic about the whole situation with him is that he's like the least helpful supernatural entity ever. <laughs> uh, if you look at it from a point of like he actually is trying to warn her, he's just like doing it horribly. And if he would just leave her alone, she would be able to like get through all of these things just fine. But everything he does pushes her accidentally farther into danger. Mm-hmm. Which just adds that much more and makes you wonder. It sets up the whole thing for audience interpretation. Is her imagination doing yeah. her more harm than good? Mm-hmm. Uh, Which is what happens out in the middle of the night in the woods, too. Like, the mind plays tricks on you, and that power suggestion is, like, so strong. When, especially when you're on your own and you don't have someone to play it off against, that, like, hey, like, we're both getting this way right now. Isn't that funny? You know, it's you, you can really, like, let your get carried away in your own thoughts and put yourself into a, thinking you're in a more dangerous situation than you are. Mm-hmm. There's also, you know, the action of this person is literal inaction. It's the opposite of most survival movies where every moment is like a life or death. This is much more existential where she just has to, like her action is to not run away. Right. Her action is to just stay and guard something. Uh, there are moments, in, there are moments in the film where the bear... one person just staying put and that's it. <laughs> well, there are moments in the Very film that the bear, the bear could be more helpful than Wendy's imagination. Uh, What's that? <laughs> There are moments in the film where when the bear could prove more helpful than Wendy's own imagination. Uh, you know, if because the bear forces her to think. It, it really forces her yeah. to get a grip and think of things rather and focus rather than keep internalizing. And I, I found that quite That's interesting. True. I found that quite interesting in how it and how, you know, this comes across. As you're watching it. And, you know, that, that adds a little twist in there for, you know, for Mother Nature. Mother Nature isn't always bad. Um, sometimes... That's true. It's the, the kind of balance of, uh, you know, the things that she's afraid of in her head. If she can't get over those, then she can't face the things that... Are real. Things that you really should be afraid of in real life. Mm-hmm. And it's not until she gets over those things that are in her head that she can face real life. Yeah. Now, you know, some... so I, you know, I would think it's like she wouldn't even be able to make it through the next day if she hadn't gone through the night before, which was so awful while she was going through it, but was ultimately her greatest teacher. That's right. Uh, you know, I know the something else that you do here that in, today, in today's age and all the discussion about female directors, female crews, you've got a female protagonist... The film is totally from the female point of, point of view and a teenage female point of view without falling into uh, the 12 and 13 cutesy YA stages. You've got a female cinematographer. Mm-hmm. You have one of your editors is a female. Your production designers are female. You have just flooded the film with, with females. Was this your intent from the very beginning? Um, it actually wasn't. 
uh, it just, I think, you know, women tend to hire more women just mm-hmm. traditionally. I, I know that's like statistically accurate, so I feel okay saying that. Um, but no, I generally, you know, I, I want to hire the best people for the job, and that usually doesn't come into uh, play mm-hmm. uh, for me. And it just so happens that the best people for the job happen to be primarily women uh, that really gravitated towards the story. And I think that's what it might have been more than anything, is that they really gravitated towards the character and the story had really good insights on what they wanted to do with it, and that's what drew me to them as the uh, department heads for, mm-hmm. for um, this specific movie. But uh, I, do, I guess I do tend to work uh, with a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, women in the stuff that I do, but even when I was producing, that was the case um, as well. You know, women hire women. Why not? More men should. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Wouldn't that be grown? (laughs) So, at the end of the day, the film is ready to come out into the world now, this Friday. Theaters and on demand, same time. Um, That is correct. uh, This is a great thing. Unfortunately, you are going up against the Avengers that, you know, are taking up 99% of the theaters. Uh, around, but yeah, some real good counter programming there. I mean, this this is a great alternative, and for people that can't get tickets to see the Avengers, Body of Brighton Rock is a very good alternative. Uh, we we have a young girl who one day she does she is painted into a corner, but finds with strength within herself. Who knows? Eventually. Wendy could end up being an Avenger one day. Uh, <laughs> it's funny. It is like the exact uh, polar opposite of those movies. Sis. It's like 7,000 characters coming together in that movie versus like one girl alone going on her like solo journey of discovery. <laughs> yeah. It, it, and even in the, the big tent pole, they're all going on journeys of self-discovery too, which is, I think this is the crux of any good storytelling. It's there's self-discovery at every turn for at least one, if not all of the characters. And here with Body of Brighton Rock, you really bring us into Wendy's journey. And you and you make us you remind us what those feelings are like, what that's like. I mean, I go back to the days when we didn't have cell phones and we really did have to learn how to how to read a map. Uh, So, yeah, yeah. I'm very fortunate that I can still actually read a map, and I do keep a Thomas Guide in my car. I cannot use Google to Google Maps. Uh, so I'm at yes. <laughs> But you really have something for every generation here, something for everyone. And I just I can't wait to see what you do next, Roxanne. Do you have anything else on your plate yet, or are you waiting to see how Body at Brighton Rock plays out? Well, I just uh, finished uh, up on a TV show um, called Creep Show for Shudder that uh, Greg Nicotero is showrunning. It's a um, TV version of the movies from the 80s, the anthology movies from mm-hmm. the 80s. And then um, I just uh, finished up a script for Orion that is a remake of Night of the Comet. Oh! Uh, which is about, yeah, two teenage girls, valley girls, kind of taking on the apocalypse. So hopefully that's... Uh, going to come up soon 
Well, you can never have too much of that because the opportunity for comedic hijinks, inherent comedic hijinks, is boundless. Yes. <laughs> now that I that I would I, w- I would like to see that. Sign me up. I'm re- I want to see that one. So they need to make that one. <laughs> well, Roxanne, I can't thank you enough for for joining me today on the show. Unfortunately, we're all out of time today. Uh, I hope you'll come back again with another one of your projects. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, absolute pleasure. And in the meantime, Friday, everybody can body of bright and rock in theaters and on demand. And it's all. And are you doing digitally also, or just VOD? Is it everything? It's everything. Everything day date. So it'll be on digital. It'll be. You can find it on iTunes, on Amazon, whatever. It'll be on Spectrum. Yep. The whole everything. So there's no excuse for people to not see Body of Brighton Rock this weekend. <laughs> it's That's that simple. Right. Roxanne, thank you so so much, and I hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you. Thanks. Bye bye. And that was Roxanne Benjamin. Earlier in the show, you heard our exclusive pre-recorded interview with Roxanne Dawson. Breakthrough in theaters now. Body of Brighton Rock in theaters, digital, and on demand this Friday. And next week, we're going to talk a little bit bit about Avengers Endgame. So, until then, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. (laughs) 